God, um, we do believe in your Holy Spirit, and we believe that through his interaction in our minds and in our hearts is the only way it's possible for us to have uh, the kind of awareness and growth and even waking up to, to you that we want. We want to be changed people. We want to be people who have uh, the power of the Holy Spirit inside of us. So even as we look at your word today, um, would you, um, the Holy Spirit, be active in our hearts and would we be receptive to your activity? Amen. Let me talk about, uh, it's the first ministry lunch I ever had in Bloomington was with a guy named Tim. Uh, go to the next slide. We were meet, meeting at Mother Bear's Pizza, and this would have been in the fall of 1991. I was eight years old then. No, I wasn't. I was like 30. But it was the first person. I was college minister at Evangelical Community Church, and this guy wanted to have lunch. I never met him before. His name was Tim. Um, I'm using his real name because none of you would know him. And so I'm new to ministry, no experience in terms of pastoral ministry. So it's weird. I can even remember what table we were sitting at in Mother Bears. So we sit down, and after a very quick, hi, how are you, who are you, like, he goes right into it, and he says this. My name's Tim, and for the last uh, five years I've lived a gay lifestyle. I'm a Christian now, and I think God wants me celibate. Will you help me? He said it about that fast, and I'm just like, I'm not in Kansas anymore, right? And I said to him, yeah, then we, I said, let's talk about it. And as we talked, he stopped at one point, and he said, I'm surprised you're not shocked at what I just told you. And I said to him, I'm not shocked at your sexual brokenness, because I know my own, and I'm no longer shocked at that. And so that was my introduction to, okay, this whole issue of LGBTQ+. Plus, uh, I mean, I, I was aware of those kind of things, but I never had a face-to-face. I never knew a person. So we've been doing a series on, uh, I'm calling it Wake Up. Jesus wants you to wake up. And it's a, kind of a play off the whole, day, whole concept of being woke in our culture today. But my uh, challenge to all this is let's wake up to Jesus. That's our first priority. Be aware of cultural issues, yes, but waking up to Jesus and the Holy Spirit is most important. So we have all these issues. We've talked about some. Go to the next slide. We've talked about racism. We've talked about white privilege. Um, this week we're going to talk about uh, LGBTQ issues. You know, I'd have the Bloomington Pride up there. The TASC is the transgender community on campus. That's, that'll be in a, next week as well. So we're going to spend a couple weeks on the LGBTQ plus issues. And... Uh, I've, ever, we've, I've talked about a variety of assumptions I've made, but the, one of the primary assumptions is asking all of us to consider how Jesus would want you to make a posture shift. I think I have that slide in there. I don't have the posture shift slide, and uh, I don't have them out this week, but we talked about Jesus being full of grace and truth. I think I had truth over here and grace over there, and sometimes we can be so full of truth, we don't have any space for grace, and we're just hard with people. Sometimes we're so full of grace and it becomes kind of a sappy kindness that we don't have any, there's no truth. So the posture shift is we need to all be moving toward what Jesus is like, which he's full of trace, trace, trace and growth. Grace and truth, I had to think about that. I'm only 59, it's an elderly moment already, right? So he's full of grace and truth, so every one of us Every one of us will have to make some kind of a shift because none of us are Jesus, right? So we have to make some kind of shift and think about how we're in, in, in engaging with some of these issues. The other, I have other assumptions, but I'm just going to say one. The big question we want to ask about all these issues, what does Jesus think about these issues? You know, I have this thing up here, so we trust Jesus. That's kind of the first statement of the, of the doctrinal statement of Exodus Church. We trust Jesus. So we always have to ask ourselves, what does Jesus think? What does Jesus think about racism? What does Jesus think about white privilege? What does he think about LGBTQ+, what does he think about um, immigrants to the border? What does he think about climate change, all right? But then the most important question we have to ask from that is how do we know what Jesus thinks? Because what happens most often is, it's my experience with people, is we put words into Jesus' mouth. We say, well, Jesus would have said this. It's like, well, but he didn't say that, so we can't put words in his mouth. Or people will say, well, Jesus is all about love, therefore we shouldn't. It's like, but he, 
we can't put words in his mouth. We can only go with what does he think, and we trust Jesus. And then on the back of this I have we trust the Bible because we believe the Bible is the only, our only source to know exactly what Jesus said and did. So we have, to, we have to start and only can start there. So let me show you. These are, I just have a, just leave that slide up there for now. This uh, Adidas bag, and not that it's my book bag, but these are all the books I have in my library on homosexuality. All right? I have a lot of them. I've read them all. Journals, scientific journals. There's a lot of books. Some of them are videotapes, tapes. I've listened to a lot of podcasts. I mean, it, I read all these, right? And I'm not saying that to say why well, I know so much because there's like way more books than this. But this is an issue I've, I've thought a lot about and read a lot about, and there's tons of books on this issue. But there's nothing more important than, okay, what does the Bible say? What does Jesus say? And most of these books are about what does the Bible say, but in the end, we have to, you're responsible to, between you and the Holy Spirit and Scripture yourself, we have to decide that. So to some degree, that, that matters, but it doesn't matter. I mean, I, you, I hear people all the time on this issue say, well, have you read the latest report on this or this or this? And it's like, in the end, if we believe all Scripture is breathed into life by God, the Holy Spirit, in the end, this matters. And your interaction with the Bible via the Holy Spirit is what matters. These things are important. There's good books to read. I actually have a, a, a copies of books that I'm going to, if somebody wants them today, they can have them. There's a certain book that I'm going to suggest. But the bottom line is we've got to start here. As we start with Jesus, we have to start here. And we cannot put words, it's kind of like I think of the cartoons where you have the little talk bubbles. We can't start penning in words for Jesus. We have to go with what he said, and then what does that mean? How would that apply to this issue? So, so on your, uh, and because a part of it is too, this issue is not about issues, right? It's about people. It's about people. So everybody has one of these on your table. And on the back side, I have one of the sides, all these blanks, what does Jesus think about? I want you to take a few seconds now, write down either the name or if you just wanted the first initial of people you know that are in the GLBT community. Maybe people you work with, maybe family members. Because I want, I, want I want to remind you and me that it's about people. So just take a few seconds as I'm kind of blabbering up here and just write down names of people that you know. Maybe it's family members, friends, coworkers. Because the, the question we want to know first is, what does Jesus think about them? They're people. I mean, this, is, this helps us know what to think about the issue. But the issue isn't what Jesus cares about. He cares about the people involved. Yeah, I mean, the issue is important. You know what I mean? I'm not saying these. But let's, let's first and foremost remind ourselves these are people. People that Jesus loves. So my list includes, and these, the list I have, and I'm just going to read first names. I've changed some other names because mo most of you wouldn't know anybody of these. But uh, these are all people I actually had meals with and talked about this issue in their lives over a meal, all right? Uh, Tim, Stephen, John, David, Christopher, Andrew, Orneal, Anne, Angela, Joe, and Sam. And there's probably others. Those are the ones I could quickly come up with over the years. Um, and they're people. And I, I, I have to remind myself, it's people. So, what does Jesus think about these people? Well, let's, again, we, ha we can only go first by Scripture. Well, let's look, let's think first and just, what does Jesus, leave it, yeah, leave it on this slide. What does he think about, how did he interact with people in the New Testament who were sexually broken? All right, let's start there. Because, and also let me say this too, we're all sexually broken. Whether you have homosexual desires or heterosexual desires, whether you're married or whatever, we are all sexually broken this side of full redemption in heaven, all right? So I'm not saying homosexuals are more sexually broken than heterosexuals. We're all broken apart from the work of Jesus in our lives. You know what I'm saying on that? We're on the same page. So a couple of situations. Okay, Luke 7, or John 4, and I think I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, Jesus, uh, Samaritan woman at the well, 
Because right? the question we're asking is, how does Jesus interact with immoral people? What does he think about them? Well, the Samaritan woman in the well. I mean, there's all kinds of other issues going on, the racial issue and all kinds of stuff. But as Jesus is talking to her, she says, well, my, let, me go, let me go get my husband. He's like, you don't have a husband. I mean, you're on your fifth one or whatever it was now. So basically, she had lived an immoral life. She was on husband five or guy six. I'm not sure what it was. But it was, it was to most of us, it would have been like, wow, she's really. But when you look at the interaction Jesus had with her, he was kind. He didn't degrade her. He wasn't mocking her. Of course, he didn't call her any names. I mean, in, in that story alone, the Samaritan or the Jews would have called this woman a name for being a Samaritan, let alone being a, a loose Samaritan. So when we ask the question, what does Jesus think about these people you and I know? Well, with the Samaritan woman, he was really quite tender. Blunt at times, but never mocking, never condescending, all right? Then you have the woman who was caught in adultery, this drug before Jesus, and the Pharisees say, this woman is caught in adultery. The law says to stone her. And, of course, they're testing Jesus. They're not, they're not really interested in carrying out the law of God. They're interested in testing Jesus. And Jesus says some things, and, you know, who, who was without sin cast the first stone. And they all leave one by one. And then Jesus says to the woman, so, woman, where are your accusers? And she says, they're, they're not here anymore. He goes, well, neither do I accuse you. And he says, go and sin no more. So incredible tenderness, mercy, grace, but also truth. Go and sin no more. He didn't say, if you love the guy, keep it up. But, it's, but he was incredibly tender and graceful, and he saved her life. He doesn't chastise her, didn't shake a finger at her. He didn't say, well, now these guys are gone. Let me tell you about what you've been doing. He's just like, where are your accusers? And he said, I don't accuse you either, but go and sin no more. You know, grace and truth, all right? And then uh, in Luke chapter 7, Jesus had his, was at a Pharisee's house. He was in, his feet were anointed um, with oil, and a, a woman washed or cleaned his feet off with her hair. And Scripture gives us the impression it was, a, it was a certain immoral woman, is what Scripture says, which pretty much means she was a prostitute. And the Pharisees are like, if he knew who was washing his feet right now, he would not let her do it. And then, but Jesus goes on to basically uh, praise what she did for him. He doesn't call her lifestyle into question, although we have to understand she knew that Jesus was holy. But he treated her again with, with grace and mercy and kindness. So what does Jesus think about those people on your list and the people on my list? Mine are on a different piece of paper. He thinks about how he thinks about all of us who are sexually broken. He's great mercy and kindness and, and a desire for us to be completely whole, alive, awake, and free. He, he's, not the, he's not the finger wagger. Again, truth matters. Right? Truth matters. We're going to look at that in a second, but mercy matters. I mean, I've said this before. How many times you've heard somebody say, we've got to take a stand for truth on this issue? Probably a lot. Have you ever heard anybody say, we should take a stand for mercy on this issue? We don't take a stand for grace on this issue. I mean, I guess we're doing both, but we tend to we take a stand for truth. We tend to go there, all right? So that first question is, what does Jesus think about the people involved in this that you and I know, all right? And, and the conclusion is, well, what we know from Scripture, he's incredibly tender and merciful and kind, but yet he'll say things that need to be said. But obviously at the right timing, he didn't start the Samaritan woman conversation with, hey, by the way, I know you're on to husband number five, you've got to stop. He didn't start with the adulterous woman by saying, you know what, you were totally wrong. I hate what you did was wrong. He started with kind of redeeming her in the conversation, and then he kind of said things that needed to be said. So it's about timing. So that's the first part. What does Jesus think about the people involved? Because, again, they're not issues. They're people, all right? Um, now, but the second question, which is also important, is what does Jesus think about sexual morality? Go to the next slide. Because let's, let's, let's separate them a little bit in our minds. Because, I mean, people commit sexually immoral acts. I'm not saying that's not what happens, but let's make sure we understand, first of all, that what does Jesus think about 
people in the LGBTQ plus community. Um, and I'll make the point again, we're all sexually broken. All right? One of the guys I had lunch with years ago, he was a graduate student in the class I was teaching at IU, African American, and uh, he grew up in church and he wanted to have lunch and I knew he wanted to talk about this issue and he actually started off the conversation by saying, okay, so what do you, uh, what do you think about me being a gay man? And I, I said to him, okay, my first assumption is we're both sexually broken. I said, I'm broken. I said, I'm married. I'm heterosexual. That doesn't make me whole. This side of heaven, and I'm still in the process of Jesus redeeming that whole part of my personality. Just because I'm married doesn't mean I'm whole. For those of you married know what I'm talking about. And I said, so I'm broken, and so are you. And I said, I do believe the Bible is clear about God's design for sexual expression, one man and one woman for life. I do believe that, because that's what the Bible says. But I said, but please understand, my assumption is we're both coming from a place of brokenness. Because that's important to kind of start there, because if we come from a place of condescension with anybody, you never win those conversations. That's the Pharisees. So, but, but we do have to ask the question, what, do you, what is Jesus about sexual morality? So now on your cards, on the back side, there's a couple different verses. So go to the first verse I have on the screen here, Matthew 15. Now, what you will often hear on this issue, and again, I'm not trying to make a debate about it. You'll often hear people say, Jesus didn't say anything about homosexuality. Therefore, he must be okay with it. Um, well, Jesus didn't, Jesus didn't say anything about having sex with animals either. He didn't say anything about having sex with kids either. So to, to use that argument really is a, is a logical fallacy, if I can use a big word. I had a logic class in college, so I had to use that word one time. So, but, but we can't give an idea of what he thought about these issues, all right? So this is Matthew chapter 15, 18 and 20. The, the, the Pharisees were upset because the disciples didn't ceremoniously wash their hands before they ate because if they washed their hands, then... You don't put anything dirty into your body, which keeps you clean, I guess, from their point of view. So Jesus responds this way. He says, but the words you speak come from your heart. That's what defiles you. For from the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, all sexual immorality, theft, lying, and slander. These are what defile you. Eating with unwashed hands will never defile you. All right? So there's a list he talks about up there, and it's not exhaustive, and we're not going to, I'm not saying one is necessarily worse than those, but we're talking about the LGBTQ issue. So, so we have the word adultery, that clearly in Scripture, and when Jesus is speaking this, everybody there was Jewish. They knew that the Old Testament said on these issues. Everybody knew. Leviticus chapter 18 and chapter 20 have a lot to say about the sexual immorality ethic that God was expecting of his people. So when Jesus is talking to people, they knew that's what he was referring to. So adultery, that's clear. A man having sexual relations with a woman is not his wife, all right? But then he also used the term all sexual immorality. Well, the word sexual immorality, the Greek word is, and not, the Greek word is the word porneia, which we get our word pornography from. And porneia, everybody listening to Jesus knew he meant porneia. Adultery is man and a having you know, women, a man and a woman who are married having sexual relations who aren't married to each other. Porneia is any kind of sexual expression outside of one man, one woman for life. Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20 talks about all kinds of sexual prohibitions. And when Jesus said that, they knew he was talking about that. And included in the sexual prohibitions of 18 and Leviticus 18 and 20 is clear prohibitions about same-sex sexual expression homosexual expression. It's very clear in the Leviticus, uh, the book of Leviticus, when Jesus, when God talks about the sexual um, prohibitions. And you might say, and sometimes people will say, why does God have so many prohibitions? Well, God's nose, I say it this way, God's little nose protect the big yes. Because sexual, uh, sexual, sexual expression, sexual intercourse was God's idea. It wasn't a, oh, no, look what they're doing. we got, we got, to, we got to put some rules on this thing. It was God's idea from the beginning because he knew how incredibly beautiful, powerful, wonderful it is. 
So when Jesus is saying sexual immorality, he's saying that, you know, that all those things come from your heart. Well, he, when he says that, they, they knew that that meant anything Jesus, the Bible talked about, which would have included homosexuality. If this would have been a perfect chance for Jesus to stop and make a correction from the book of Leviticus. There's a perfect chance to, to stop and say, oh, by the way, say, but he doesn't do that. And some people have said, well, he was trying to adapt to the culture. Well, when did Jesus ever adapt to the culture? He was always going right at the religious culture, right? So the fact that he uses this term and every Jew knew what he meant, he meant the totality of Leviticus 18 and 20 and Old Testament teaching. So what, what does Jesus think about sexual immorality? Well, same thing he thinks about evil thoughts, murder, adultery, theft, lying, and slander. And we can likely find ourselves in that list somewhere. Um, they, are ev- they, they come from the part of our heart that defile us. And defiling means it makes us not what... It, it, it's kind of a de- denigration thing. It's like it's not, it's not what it ought to be. So any of those sexual practices that Leviticus talks about that God has prohibited makes you less of a woman or a man than you, than you are because you're doing things that oppose what, how God designed you. God wants you to be full of the life and power that come from God, whether you're male or female. But if you practice any of these things, including slander, theft, and lying, I think the adjusted tax due date is Monday, so make sure you're honest on your tax forms, and I'm saying that seriously. Be honest on your tax forms because it seems like Jesus is saying that's pretty serious too, right? So... Those kind of things are what defile you, all right? So Jesus is pretty clear that he, he, he's agreeing with kind of this Old Testament. And by saying Old Testament, sometimes we hear the word old, like old-fashioned. Jesus is not agreeing with an old-fashioned sexual ethic. He's agreeing with a sexual ethic that God designed from the beginning to protect the wonderful thing that sex is, all right? So um, second thing, Matthew 19, all right? So this one, uh, the Pharisees, again, every time the Pharisees talk to Jesus, except with Nicodemus, I think, in John 3, they're trying to trap him, trying to get him to do something, say something they could charge him with. But uh, In those days, you could divorce, uh, a man could divorce his wife simply by saying, I'm not happy with her anymore, and get a certificate of divorce, and it's over. So it was, it was really denigrating to women in that sense, in many ways. So, so this is uh, Matthew chapter 19. Some Pharisees came and tried to trap him with the question, should a man be allowed to divorce his wife for just any reason? So the question is divorce, and we'll get to how that applies to LGBTQ. Haven't you read the scriptures, Jesus replied. They record that from the beginning, God that made them male and female. Now you'll also in your card, I also have Genesis 127. All right? So just if you have a pen, let's say, well, Circle male, God made them male and female in the first verse, and in verse uh, 4 of Matthew 19, and draw a line down to uh, male and female in Genesis 127. I'm just saying that because Jesus is quoting verbatim from Genesis 120, well, not verbatim, but for the most part verbatim. Having you read the scriptures, they record that from the beginning God made them male and female, and he said, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one, all right? He's talking about marriage. He's talking about the design for marriage from the beginning. It goes all the way back to Genesis 1. So this passage goes all the way back to Genesis 1. The original design was male and female. And we'll talk about the transgender issues uh, next week. But again, with, with grace and mercy. Because they're people, right? Um, male and female, and they're united into one. All right. He doesn't leave any room... Um, for same-sex marriage, same-sex relationships. And, um, because he didn't have to address that because it was assumed by his listeners. That was the ethic they all knew the Old Testament promoted. Um, so those two passages alone, those are, the, those are primarily the things we have from Jesus that would address this issue. Now, Paul and the rest of the New Testament is more explicit about and God's prohibition of homosexual behavior. And of course, I mentioned already Leviticus. But a lot of people you'll talk to, and I've talked to, they just want to talk about what does Jesus say. But this is pretty, I think this is pretty clear that we're on. 
I'm always, I'm always sensitive to people who do what I call uh, interpretive gymnastics with the Bible. Like, you try to make it say something that you're like, that doesn't, how would, that, that doesn't say that. Because what you always have to ask is, when Jesus said this, what did his original hearers understand him to mean? You, you can't say, well, now we know it means something different. Well, no, you, Jesus wasn't playing games. And if the average person read these passages, they would come to the conclusion of this was God's design for sexual expression. One man, one woman, marriage for life. So any, any time when you see people, uh, I think I've used the word exegesis is when you get the meaning out of Scripture. Eisegesis, they're just fancy Greek words, means you have, a, you have a preordained conclusion and you want to find it somewhere, all right? So, I mean, I've heard people, I've, this is a prominent argument that there's a place where David and Jonathan, David, King David, is best friends with Jonathan, Saul's son, and uh, they were really good friends, and there's one point where they traded robes with each other. I've read books that say that's David and Jonathan having gay sex. They got, they got undressed with each other. Well, you have to start with the assumption you're looking for homosexuality to find that there. Because there's nothing in that reading that anybody would ever think, oh, that's what they were doing. And there's other times. Uh, so, uh, like I said, Paul says some very clear things in Romans chapter 1, some of the passages. Um, and what I've said to people before is you can believe whatever you want about homosexuality. You just can't support other beliefs from the Bible and from Jesus. So I'm, I'm not telling anybody what to believe here. But I'm saying, if you want to believe it on, if you want to base it on, you trust Jesus, what does Jesus think about this? What does the Bible say about this? Um, that's where we have to land. You can believe whatever you want. But if you want to support it through Jesus, what we know of Jesus, you can't create a Jesus. You can't create your own Jesus and put words into this dialogue box. All right? So here's some questions that people have asked. And I, I was, go to the next slide here. So one of the things we think we're going to do is ask some tough questions. And you might have other questions too, or we, maybe you can let me know and we can talk about it other weeks. First one is this. Um, go to the next slide. You've seen this bumper sticker about uh, promoting um, gay marriage. Love is love. Well, if, if love is love, why can't two men be married? Why can't two women be married? I actually had a pastor tell me. I can tell you where we were sitting in the restaurant too, but... My wife always tells me it's weird that I can remember where we sat in restaurants. I'm like, I don't know why I do. But and he said to me, you know, if, a, if a, one man is in love with another man and they want to be committed the rest of their life, I have no problem with that. He said that. I didn't respond because it wasn't, I didn't want to make an argumentative breakfast. But I thought, I don't have any problem with that either. I don't have any problem with, I mean, there's a lot of men I love. I have great friends. But love does not equal sex. So when people say that, it's like, well, there's a lot of people I love but don't have sex with. Not to be, not to be weird, but I love my mom. I love my, I love my brothers. But this argument seems, well, Jesus is all about love, so therefore, if people, why would God be against love? Well, he's not against love. He's against sexual expression outside of how he designed it. And it's, it's, it's a little bit of a sleight of hand on this um, when people say that because it's like, actually, the first time I heard this, the, what, this argument in favor of what, I, and what I'm saying was from Martin Luther King's niece. She's an ordained pastor. And she kept saying, love is love, but love is not sex. And she kept saying, I love people I don't have sex with. So God's not against anybody loving each other. He's not against two men or two women having incredibly loving relationships. But love, when Jesus told disciples, love one another, he obviously wasn't inviting them to a massive sexual expression together. Right? I mean, it's, it's silly to think it. So, so when you hear people say love is love, yeah, love is love, but love is not sex. That's one thing to keep in mind. Second thing, another thing is this. These, these, are, these are not exhaustive questions. Go to the next slide. So uh, I'm going to recommend a book to you at the end, and, it'll, and I'll show it to you in a second. There's two different terms that people have used, and I, I actually am encouraging people to use the word uh, term SSA, same-sex attraction. Um, I've had some people say I'm a gay Christian. I've had some people say I'm a same-sex attracted Christian. Sorry, I keep dropping my papers. I don't, I don't need them. I'll leave them there. So um, I do believe, and I think it's very clear when you talk to, when you read things, there are people who have same-sex attractions, unwanted same-sex attractions. 
They didn't ask for it. They didn't, uh, they didn't, they didn't feed it. They just don't know what to do with it. All right? The desire itself, the attraction itself, is not a sin. Most, I'm assuming most men here have been attracted to other women, if you're married, who are not your wife. The attraction itself is not a sin. What you do with it can be horribly sinful. Right? So having the desire is not the sin. What you do with it is, and so or can be. So I, I remember, actually, one of these books over here, if I can figure out which one it was. I'm really organized, right? This one right here was given to me uh, by a student. This was 20, this would have been 25 years ago, a student. He was actually from, like, I think it was from, like, Bangladesh, grad student. He wanted to read this book because he had was experiencing same-sex desires and didn't know, didn't know how to stop it. All right? And I think I was wise enough then that I didn't treat his desire as the problem. And uh, so gay, the term gay usually implies a lifestyle. It's, a, it's kind of a worldview. Whereas I've talked to some Christians lately who are same-sex attracted but choose to be celibate. And the book I'm recommending at the end of the service today is written by somebody in that category. They have been same-sex attracted their whole life, um, but they understand God's calling in his life to be celibate, right? So it's just, it's, it's word differences, and I'm not saying you shouldn't use the word gay in certain situations, but there are people, and I don't know, there may be people in this room who have had same-sex attraction, and they feel dirty because of the attraction. The attraction itself is not the sin. So if you know people are in that category, or if that's you, have a conversation with me, have a conversation with somebody, because that is not, the, 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 the attraction itself, especially when it's unwelcome, I've had, there's a, I've had lunch with a guy a number of times, he just said, I've never wanted to be, have this attraction, I never asked for it, I prayed to God to take it away, he didn't take it away, therefore I assume God wants me to be sexually active as a gay man. All right, well, let's at least be empathetic toward that. He didn't ask for it. Now, I'm not saying that, just, that, that doesn't demolish truth. That doesn't demolish what Jesus thinks about immorality. But anyway, I'm just, so I'm, I'm, I'm using these two terms to help you understand. There are people that have those desires that don't know what to do with it. I, I've heard something about, read something about a person who shared their desire with a pastor, and the pastor then said, I want you to leave and never come back to this church. Well, the desire isn't the problem. I mean, you and I, we all have desires to do things that are sinful, whether it's sexual or not. What you do with it, I mean, I've had desires that fudge on the truth on things. Well, because I desire that doesn't make me sinful. Now, if I do fudge on the truth, yeah. But the desire itself isn't the, isn't the, isn't the. So you might hear these terms, if people call same-sex attraction. It, it helps, it helps, me, helps me think about it in terms of how do you help, how do you shepherd somebody or interact with somebody who has same-sex attraction? They didn't ask for, all right? So a couple more of these. Next one. Um, how do I relate to my gay friends, co-workers, and family members? With incredible grace, mercy, and love. Especially if they're not, if they are not Christians. I mean, I guess if they're Christians too, don't, don't be less merciful. But um, look at Jesus with the sexually broken. He goes to a party at Matthew's house with the tax collectors and prostitutes. I don't think he was wagging his finger at them. Now, there's a point in where if they, somebody becomes a follower of Jesus, there's a point in where they have to hit this issue head on, like we all have to hit these kind of issues head on. But, um, I mean, I've had, I've had somebody ask me before, one of these people on my list asked me, am I welcome at your church? And I said, sure, you're welcome at my church. You can always come. Anybody's welcome to follow Jesus. Then he asked, which this is typically of these kind of conversations, could I play in your worship band? Well, if I, if I knew Aaron was regularly cheating on his taxes, would I let him lead worship? No. And that, that this person would say, well, that's equating me to being cheated. No, I said, but there's all kinds of lines that God tells us not to cross for our own sake. So anybody's welcome, but what, what tends to be the challenge is how do we be welcoming of people, any sinners for that matter, but sexually broken, LGBT plus, Q plus, how do we welcome them without being affirming? 
Because affirming means you're welcome here and who you are is and what you do, your sexual habits are okay with us. Well, they're not okay with God. So if you hear somebody say, and this is a term you'll hear in Bloomington, if somebody says their church is an affirming church, that means they affirm sexual expression between same-sex couples. They affirm that. We welcome people who have those lifestyles, but because Jesus doesn't affirm them, we can't. We can affirm them as individuals. We can treat them with respect and kindness and dignity. Um, just like I'm so glad that Jesus hasn't, Jesus never affirmed a lot of my brokenness, whether it was sexual brokenness or dishonesty or things like that, that I've had times in my life where I'm, I'm so glad Jesus didn't say, I love you, keep doing that. I'm so glad he didn't do that, especially in this sexual brokenness area. I'm so glad Jesus didn't say, ah, pornography is not that big of a deal, Matt. Just keep on, keep on finishing seminary. I'm glad he didn't say that to me. Um, so a couple more, and then this next one. Uh, go to the next one. Uh, the first century world didn't understand what we now know about LGBTQ plus relationships, right? I had to make it a question, so I added the last word, question mark. So I've heard this. Somebody told me recently, and, I, and again, I'm not, trying to, I'm not trying to debate them. I'm just saying these are the kind of issues. They said, well, we now know things. This was, I was told this about two years ago by a pastor in Bloomington. We now know things about psychology that we understand things differently, and so it's okay for men to be married or women to be married and have sexual interactions. And I said to this person, do you think what psychology found was a surprise to God? Do you think God didn't know that? Do I mean, you think Jesus didn't know that? It's, it's the sense of we now know new things that weren't known then, and since Jesus was bound by his culture, he didn't know those things then. If he was here now, he would say otherwise. You can, you can like to think that would be, but we, we, we can't say that. You can't just put words in his mouth. And there's nothing new under the sun about, the human, about human nature that surprises God. So when, when people have said that to me, and people have also heard, you know, well, in the first century, they, they didn't know of same-sex loving relationships like we do now. I read some this week about first century sexuality in the Roman Empire. I had to stop reading because it got a little bit disturbing to me reading about the same-sex culture that existed then. So Jesus was not ignorant that that was going on. So it wasn't like there was something that was happening that if Jesus would have only known, he would have made an addition to one of his passages earlier. He was, he was fully aware. I mean, it was fully aware in that culture. There were same, I mean, I think one of the, uh, was it one of the Caesars? I can't remember which one it was. He got married twice to men. One time he was the male, one time he dressed as the bride. I mean, it's just, there was, and I'm not saying all people who have same-sex attraction or gay relationships are, are weird like that, but there were even what they would what we would call normative gay relationships in that time in history. So it's not like all of a sudden now there's new things that if God knew these things 20, 20 centuries later, he would have changed what Jesus said. So otherwise, you can make the argument about any behavior. Well, God didn't know about the IRS, so it's okay to cheat on your taxes. I mean, I'm being a little bit facetious, but you know what I mean. So there's nothing new we have, to, we have to believe, and if we trust Jesus and we trust the Bible, if you say the Bible is a dated book, then you can make it say anything you want to. You can justify anything. But if the Bible, if God understands human nature and the Bible is written to cover every issue of all time, then we believe that there's nothing new that, that would have changed what Jesus said or did on this issue, right? Uh, last one is this, I think. So why would God make it more difficult for LGBTQ people to follow Jesus? I remember I had a conversation with a guy in Bloomington. Again, this is weird. I remember where we ate. We ate at Dragon Express on 3rd and Jordan. Or is it just called Dragon? Anyway. And it kind of hit me when we were talking to him. I thought he was he'd been the gay lifestyle. I really believe God wanted him to be celibate. And I thought... This is, really, this, could, this is really hard for somebody in this situation because if I'm just talking to, I had many conversations when I was a college pastor, if I'm just talking to John and Susie who are living together but they're not married, sexual immorality, I can say to them, you guys need to move apart, live separately, then get married. Okay, that, 
That's uncomfortable. It's an inconvenience for them. But maybe not, maybe not that challenging. But here I have Chris and Sam, two guys who are living together, fully immersed, as many are, in, the, in not just the gay lifestyle, but their friends are all in that culture. Well, for that person, for Chris to follow Jesus, doesn't just mean move away for a while, get married, and then God will bless your sexual union. It means break off the relationship, and you probably have to say goodbye to a lot of your friends because they won't understand why you're following Jesus. That's a huge different thing from, who is this over here, John and Susie, who, whatever name, you know, right? It's different. And it's like, okay, God, what? why would you make it harder for them to follow you? But here's the flip I'm going to challenge all of us on. Maybe the problem is we've made it too easy to follow Jesus for us. Because hey, I'm heterosexual, you know, I'm American, you know. But, but maybe we've made following Jesus, and I'm not saying sexually, but in general, maybe following Jesus is way too easy in the American culture. It doesn't cost us a whole lot. I mean, come to church on Sunday, read our Bible, if you tithe, you're giving money away to the church or whatever. But maybe the, maybe the issue is we ourselves are living a, a Christianity that doesn't cost us anything. So then we do think well, it's kind of unfair for God to expect, you know, Chris and John to not be gay anymore and not have sex. That's not, well, but maybe, maybe we need to rethink how we think about Christianity. Because J- Jesus was calling people all the time. Go to this last slide here. His, his, one of his primary callings was, if any of you want to be my follower, you must give up your own way and take up your cross and follow me. And when you and I read this and think about, let's read this to these people that we know are in gay lifestyles, it's like, yeah, yeah, read that. But it's like, wait a minute, what if, what if we turn around and read it to ourselves? Oh, well, I'm, I'm good. I don't, I, well, I don't, maybe there's something the Holy Spirit's been pushing you to give up your own way about that would be traumatic for you. Leave a lifestyle behind, financial lifestyle. Maybe it is things about your own sex life, whether you're married or not married. Maybe there's things that are your own way that Jesus is saying, you gotta take up your cross, put it away, follow him. All right? Then he goes on to say, if you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. What do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? So I'll just end with a challenge to us. Yes, be merciful, graceful, loving, tender, kind, and truthful with people you know in the gay lifestyle or people who are living in that kind of life. But let's turn, the, let's turn the Bible back to ourselves and ask us, is there anything God's asking me to let go of my own way? Because I want to follow Jesus um, completely. And if Jesus is asking really difficult things, and what he's really asking of people who are in the gay lifestyle, he's most, most of them would say, what Jesus is asking me is to live my life celibate. And for some of us, that's like, wow, that'd be a, that's a challenge. But maybe God's asking you to do something that's equally as hard. But we just, we kind of blow it off. It's not a big deal. I, I don't need to do that. I already got my heaven ticket. So let's, let's just make sure that the Christianity... And it's, it's worth following Jesus because of who he is. So if he says things to you and me about our lives, lifestyles, sexual habits, in or out of your marriage, money, whatever, he may ask you to do something that's really challenging and difficult and uncomfortable and disrupting for you to do. So my hope for you walk away from this, you're not just thinking about you know, uh, LGBTQ plus, and what does Jesus say about that? And we think about that, but think about the ways Jesus may be challenging you to follow him at some significant cost to yourself. It's easy for us in America to do this. We can follow. If we were all, if we were, if I was preaching to you and you were, we were in Saudi Arabia and you were all grew up Muslims, it'd be really hard to follow Jesus. But surely God's not going to design a Christianity. It's just easier for Americans, easier for white hetero Americans to follow him. Well, he never said that, so there might be ways he's asking us to do things that are equally as radically challenging and disruptive to our lives. So um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. Kristen, now is when I want to show that video real quick. I don't know if somebody knows. Aaron, you know where the light switches are? So I have a book that everybody can have a copy of. And I have all these books up here. 
I picked, you'll be happy about this, the smallest one to give away, all right? But it's written by, and I'm going to watch it, we're going to watch a three-minute uh, infomercial, so to speak. The author of this book is Sam Alberry. Anybody heard of him? <clears throat> very, very, very helpful for me in the last few years. He is an Anglican priest in Great Britain. His whole life he has been same-sex attracted. He talks openly about that, but he also believes God's calling on his life to be celibate. And for whatever reason, it gives, to me, it gives him a little more credibility to talk about this issue. I'm, I'm a white hetero guy, right? But he's been same-sex attracted his whole life. So the title of the book is, is God Anti-Gay. So he's writing it from the perspective of someone that wishes things were different in his life. All right? And I, uh, in the next couple of days, I'll, I'll send you a link to a podcast where he talks about this. But I just, he's incredibly uh, wise, biblical, um, but... This is just a, a blurb about his book. His name is Sam Alberry, and he's an Anglican priest. He has a cool British accent, which makes him sound smarter, right? So uh, go ahead and start it, Chris. And Aaron, go and turn the lights off. When did I begin to realize I was uh, attracted to men? I think probably in my 20s, I'd, I'd had experiences of, of same-sex attraction as a teenager, but I hadn't quite registered those. I don't think, but in my 20s, I, I really began to twig that it was very much the case for me, that it, it didn't seem to be a, a phase I was kind of coming out of, um, and that it was something I needed to, to think about and come to terms with. I think it's because the word gay today is very much bound up with an identity. Uh, when someone says they are gay, they, they tend to mean not just that they're attracted to people of the same gender, but that that attraction is who they are. And for me as a, as a Christian, I, I don't take my identity from my sexual attraction. I take it from the fact that I've been created by God in his image. He's made me as a, as a man. And that as a Christian, I'm, I'm now in Christ and that's how I am to see myself. And I think another issue is, again, people tend to use the word gay to mean a lifestyle. It's kind of a, a part of the whole package of how someone sees themselves and lives. And I experience same-sex attraction, but I'm, I'm not wanting to act on those feelings. As a Christian, I, I'm wanting to uh, live in obedience to God's word. And therefore, I, I think it, it's more accurate to, to speak in terms of experiencing same-sex attraction than to say, I am gay. I think we need to assume that there will be Christians in our, our congregations, Christians watching this even, who are, are battling with these feelings of attraction. And as Christian communities, uh, we need to make it an issue people feel safe to talk about. Um, I first mentioned it to my pastor because he made it very easy to in some comments he made in a sermon. He assumed that there would be people who were battling with this and he encouraged us to share it. And, and made us feel safe doing so. So we need to create a culture where it's okay to talk about, it's safe to talk about, where we're expecting there to be Christians who will battle with this. Uh, we also need to make sure we don't define people by this issue. Uh, so if someone does share that they're, they're experiencing these sorts of feelings, uh, we want to listen to them, we want to support them, we want to find out how they are, what things we can do to help, how we can be a good friend to them. But we don't want this to be the only issue that we ever talk to them about. Uh, they are far more than their sexual temptation. So I've written this book, Is God Anti-Gay? It's uh, part of a series of books looking at different questions that Christians ask. It is one of the big questions we get asked as Christians these days, but it's also an issue I think many Christians are wanting to think through. And so I've written it, I hope it will help people who will want to understand something of what the Bible says about homosexuality, but also help people to, to think about how they can encourage those who are struggling with same-sex attraction. And it may well be that people watching this will know people in their church for whom this is an issue. Or even there might be people watching this for whom it is an issue themselves. And I really hope this book will help. So I'll have, I'll have these uh, on the table up here if you want one. Grab them. I have like 25 of them, so there's plenty here. 
and I just checked there's 90 pages. So if you can't do a 90-page book, then sorry. Anyway, but it's really good, and I'll send you the podcast. This podcast, he actually tells uh, more of his story, but it just it helps me helps me have a lot more uh, empathy and kindness to people who have this attraction that they didn't ask for. And how do we minister to them? And, and he's, 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 I've watched a lot of his videos and listened to a lot of what he had to say about things. Um, one of the things he says, and I'll, I'll stop on this one, uh, he talks about that when he was a young kid, he was bullied because people said he was gay and made fun of. But now as an Anglican priest in Great Britain, he says he's bullied by his contemporary fellow priests because now they mock him for wanting to be celibate to follow Jesus because they think he should just embrace his desires and be gay. So he said it's been a kind of a funny flip around that he's still being bullied, but now by fellow priests who tell him, who mock him for saying, I want to follow Jesus. And he says, I want to follow Jesus because of who he is. Who else would I follow in life? It's just, it's, it's really good. So we finish every Sunday. Aaron's going to come up. We finish every Sunday with uh, communion. And uh, so I guess I could say, you know, take communion and let's think about people you know that are gay or same-sex attracted or whatever. But I'm going to just say, like by how I ended the other part of the sermon, is there something in your life that Jesus is asking you to give up your own way to follow him? Because if he's going to ask people who have same-sex attraction to give up uh, sexual fulfillment for the rest of their lives, then he's liable to ask the rest of us something that's equally as weighty, traumatic, and disruptive, right? So there may not be anything. Maybe it's a small thing for you. Maybe it's um, other issues for you that God's saying you need to change that. Um, And we do that not because Jesus is going to slam us if we don't. We do it because Jesus... He said, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I came, they'd have life to the full. He's, he, anything he asks you to do so you can have full life. All right? So you have your little wafer, wafer uh, uh, grape juice combo. And if you're like me, you might need somebody else to tear the cellophane off the wafer, and then you don't get one because I can't get my fingers to work on that. So um, I, I, felt, I felt some solace in the fact that a friend of mine I was starting to research that they have the same problem. They can't get the wafer out either, so I don't feel quite so sinful about that. So, so uh, let me pray, and then we'll sing. So Jesus, you gave your body and your blood for us. You gave yourself up for crucifixion, and then God raised you from the dead, and you gave yourself up for us so we could have new life, so we could have the Holy Spirit inside of us. And so these, these raging desires in us that are that are calling us to be something uh, that we're not, follow, follow, you know, calling us to be uh, follow our own desires, self-serving, self-centered. But you've given us a spirit that says we can now have uh, new desires from you. We can become the kind of people that are full of you, full of your spirit, and that your promise, like we said at the beginning of the service, is you're for us, you're not against us. So we take this... Uh, away from this cup today, and we take it with some degree of asking you, is there anything that you're trying to get my attention about, Jesus, to give up my own way and follow you? Is there anything you're asking me to do because I want to follow you, Jesus? I want the fullness of life you say you came to give, and we're grateful that you give it to us, and we ask this all in your name. Amen.